As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Alex Zanardi became the hottest of hot properties during a spellbinding three years spent racing in America, so when Williams signed him for 1999, the hope was that the team had caught lightning in a bottle. Unfortunately, there wasn't even a spark when Zanardi touched back down in F1, and after one dismal, pointless season, his three-year contract was torn up. So why didn't the trick that Williams pulled so successfully with other IndyCar champions, Jacques Villeneuve and Juan Pablo Montoya, work with Zanardi? To help me, Glenn Freeman, get to the bottom of that, we have self-confessed Zanardi superfan Matt Beer and former Williams insider Jim Wright, who was one of Frank Williams' closest allies for many years and was directly involved in the signing of Zanardi. So Jim, we'll come to you first. Thanks so much for joining us to give a, a perspective from inside the team about what went wrong for Alex. We'll start with the same question we always ask at the beginning of each episode, which is when you think back to the Zanardi-Williams experiment of 1999, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, Glenn, Matt, thank you. Uh, great, great to be able to contribute to this discussion. I think the first word that comes to mind is disappointment because we had such high hopes for Alex joining Williams and we'd had a, a you know vision to get Alex on board. We signed him on a, a reasonably long-term contract and it just didn't work. So disappointment would be the word that, that springs to mind. And Matt, you'll, you'll probably be saying something similar. I know this isn't easy for you given your admiration for Zanardi, but what is your main takeaway? Uh, for me, this is like a memory of a, uh... Loss of innocence and naivety as a sports fan that I don't think I've ever got back again. When I was a teenager, Zanardi was my absolute sporting hero. And across this season, I wouldn't say I lost faith in Zanardi, but I just kind of learned a bit about how not every situation works out regardless of talent. And therefore, it's best not to pin all your colours to one mast so overwhelmingly. Yep, that's fair. Now, we'll hear some memories from our audience next. Thanks to everyone who replied to at BBV10s on X, which I'm now calling it. Uh, before we get to the two most popular ones that kept coming up, uh, Chris Parrott said, just the surprise that the two-time kart champion who dominated that series couldn't cut the mustard in F1. And Christopher DeHarda says, pure confusion. After so many storming drives in kart, my much younger self couldn't understand how so much went wrong so quickly. And perhaps those can be best summed up by Aaron, who added just sheer disappointment. 
Matt Perry remembers Zanardi crashing out of the Australian Grand Prix right in front of where he was watching from Turn 5. As I always say, it's good to hear from those of you who have first-hand memories of anything we talk about. But let's move on to the two main things people mentioned. First up is how well Zanardi's Italian Grand Prix went at first. Uh, James Gent says being fourth on the grid and running second at Monza was a false dawn. Ansi Rulamo called Monza that flash of hope and one of the only times I noticed him that season. Indy Cart says finishing just outside the points in seventh that day sums up his season. David Wallace says Monza was the only race I recall him looking anything like what we hoped for from IndyCar. And Disc Infiltrator called Monza the glimpse of hope that we would start seeing the real Alex again. Lastly, so many of you simply replied with two words, steel brakes. We'll cover off what that was all about for those who don't know, but thanks to Drew McDevitt, uh, Carl uh, Schloboom, Regular Monster, BJ4 Design, Richard Randall, Nigel Morrison, Andy, Matt and PH, among many others. What I find particularly interesting about that, and I hadn't realised this myself until I did the research for this episode, was that he didn't actually use those steel brakes as much as I think we all thought he did. But we'll come back to that later in the episode. Remember, if you'd like to get early access to all episodes and listen ad-free, plus get more bonus content than ever before from Bring Back V10s and the race in general, then check out the Race Members Club. A membership costs just $24.99 for a year or $2.99 a month. And if you sign up, you'll get access to our upcoming exclusive series where we're going to take a look back at every single race of a classic F1 season with a mini episode devoted to each Grand Prix. If you're interested in signing up or just want to know more, look for the link in the description of this episode. And while you're there, check out the link for our community on X as well, where you can become part of a group of fans of the show that's blown up to include roughly 2,000 people now. It's, it's amazing. Don't forget you can check out our merchandise range at shop.the-race.com and make sure you get your questions in for our series finale. You can ask us anything about the V10 era. Simply send your questions to bringbackv10s at the-race.com. That's enough plugs. Let's get on to Alex Zanardi's 1999. The signs were there that this might be a struggle as early as pre-season testing when Zanardi was very honest about how he was struggling to adapt to F1 cars after three years in America. In testing, he said it was frustrating because I'm driving as well as I can and it's not fast enough. He said F1 cars and cart machinery weren't that far apart when he left F1 the first time at the end of 1994, but four years later, the rules had completely changed F1. He said the narrow cars and groove tyres didn't carry mid-corner speed anymore, which meant he was having to drive against his instinct. This was only January, so at that point these comments were framed with Alex believing he had plenty of time to get things right before the start of the season. Matt, when I was researching this, I could tell that the narrative around Zanardi struggling only became a thing during pre-season because he spoke so openly about it. Do you think maybe Alex was, was too honest for his own good at the beginning? Possibly in F1 terms, yes, because you weren't really used to an F1 driver admitting weakness in any way at that point. You're not really used to it now, but particularly then. Uh, but this, that was part of his selling point in America. He was so hot on sleeves, so open. It, it was one of the things that made him such a fan favourite as well as the driving. Yeah, as someone who was obsessed with Zanardi at the time, there'd be enough times when I'd just want to headbutt a wall about how he'd tried to find an excuse for something that had gone wrong or had uh, tried to play down an incident that was really completely his fault. But I kind of admired that he was doing it so 
with such emotional openness anyway. So I wasn't at all surprised to to read those comments. And I did think they would go they wouldn't be the best look for F1. But it was, you know, for Znardi to not be that open would have been counter to everything he was. So I, I had no objection to it on those grounds. It's interesting though that maybe it was his comments that first drew attention to how much he was struggling. Just that, so for me at that point, I was on a gap year, which I mostly spent being the kind of T-boy on the fledgling autosport.com. And I was kind of fetching the press releases from the fax machine as they came through and that sort of thing. And during winter testing, I remember a, a particular press release showing there was only a seven tenths of a second gap between Ralph Schumacher and Zanardi and seven tenths was like the best it had looked by a long way and getting a little flicker optimism from that. But the times were bad. I think there was at least one big testing crash as well. Th- things were obviously not looking good in pure numbers as well. So I'm sure if if he hadn't been that open about it, there would have been plenty in the sceptical F1 media because there's still a lot of American racing scepticism at that point. There would have been plenty of people drawing attention to it if Alex hadn't done it himself. There was a bit more to it than driving style, though. For Zanardi's first test, he'd worked with Ralph Schumacher's engineer, Craig Wilson. And Zanardi said in his book that Wilson was experienced, so he felt he knew what worked and what didn't, and that made him sceptical about trying any of Zanardi's ideas. But Patrick Head at Williams wanted Zanardi to be heard, so he felt the right move was to give Zanardi an inexperienced engineer, Greg Wheeler. Zanardi said in his book that Patrick's logic was... Alex comes from a different championship and has new ideas. If we give him someone who keeps telling him that nothing will work, we will go nowhere. After just a couple of tests, Zanardi asked Head if giving him an inexperienced engineer was a mistake because Alex felt he needed someone who already knew how to set up this tricky generation of F1 cars. But Patrick told him to be patient and Zanardi said in his book that one of his biggest mistakes was agreeing to do that rather than fighting for what he believed. Jim, you were there, you were inside Williams and, uh, you know, heading up the commercial department. Was there much concern within Williams during testing that Alex was struggling to adapt? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, when you're seven tenths away from your teammate, there'll be concern uh, anywhere. And don't forget that, you know, that car was, I think the car was, was decent, the chassis was decent, but we were carrying an engine which was not being developed. It was a super tech engine. And uh, we knew, obviously, that our rivals had taken a leap forward uh, in terms of, of, of power uh, with their uh, powertrains over the winter, and we were stood still. So there was always an element of that car being trimmed, uh, let's say, aerodynamically, so that uh, we could try and keep up down the straights, which meant it was even more difficult to drive. So I think there was an element of, a skinny car, much narrower than Alex had been driving before, groove tyres, and uh, a car which was trimmed um, probably more than it should have been to try and keep up down the straights. And, and, and that's a difficult combination for anybody. Another area where Zanardi said he failed from the beginning was in not spending more time at the Williams factory in those early weeks. He said in a brilliant interview on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast in 2020, which was shortly before the awful accident he suffered later that year on his handbike, uh, that he failed by not being dedicated and passionate enough about making it work. Zanardi said, when things were not working as well as I was hoping from the beginning, it was time to act. It was the time to rent a house next to the shop or even plant my tent in the garden, spend time with the team, gel with them, develop something. 
Steering the wheel is the last step of the game. It's actually the easiest, but I was treating the task as only steering the wheel. And the bottom line is I was steering the wheel of a car that wasn't right for me. Jim, do you think that would have made a difference if Zanardi had been in and around the factory more during this bedding in period? It's a very good question. And I don't know deep down if that would have made a difference. Don't forget, this was pre, well, we had a simulator, but it was pre the simulator being anything like as robust and, and as, 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 as reliable and as good as they are these days, where they really are making a contribution to uh, the, the racing program. And we were still allowed a reasonable amount of testing in those days compared with now. So I don't know if it would have made a difference. It, it, it certainly wouldn't have hurt, let's face it. Um, but, I mean, Alex had such an engaging personality. It wasn't as if people didn't warm to him. Everyone was very warm to him. And, and, and the fact that, I guess, you know, everyone wanted it to, to work because of Alex's personality. And we'd all seen him racing in, in America and loved his, his style and his forcefulness. Would it have made a difference? Maybe, maybe, but I, I'm not sure. As I think deep down, as you said, as you alluded to, it was a difference in style of driving the car that was alien to him. And, and that probably was his downfall. And possibly the fact that he had a rookie Formula One engineer um, didn't help with, with, with that. It, you know, maybe someone with more experience would have been more forceful to say, this isn't going to work. These are the reasons why. And explain that. And then Alex would have had to have focused on an aspect of his driving to overcome the, the challenges. But it's an interesting thought from Alex, typical of, of him. But I'm not convinced it would have made a big difference. So Zanardi went to the first race of the year in Australia and st things still weren't right. He qualified 15th and spun out of 13th place, while Ralph Schumacher put the other Williams on the podium in an attritional race, admittedly. Zanardi uh, had lost track. Uh, had lost track time through the weekend due to car problems and glazed his brakes during the race. So while it was a disappointing start, the public noises coming out of Williams were that this was just a case of misfortune. We're going to quote Zanardi's book quite a lot in this episode. And I should point out that this was published in 2004. So the, uh, the, the, the suffering from his F1 stint was still quite fresh. Whereas in more recent interviews, such as that Beyond the Grid interview in 2020, he has mellowed a bit. So we'll try to sprinkle in thoughts from various times over the last two and a bit decades uh, in the name of balance. Zanardi referenced Australia in the book, saying that on reflection, he felt that Williams lost faith in him as early as that first race. He wrote, as soon as I crashed in Australia because of a problem with erratic brake balance, it was clear that Williams thought they'd, brought a, they'd bought a lemon and couldn't care less about me. Matt, you were a, a Zanardi fan. Were you were you worried after that first race? Were the alarm bells ringing by this point? Yeah, completely. Okay, Melbourne was a strange circuit. You could see some anomalous results there. I remember being a David Coulthard fan at the start of '96, and Coulthard looking so bad compared to Mika Hakkinen in his in their first race together at McLaren, and that that gap did close. So part of me was going, strange circuit, first race could be could be a fluke, a bad fluke. But at the same time, there was this nagging thought that. 
the way he crashed in the race, I think he'd been off the road once and then he crashed for good. The the manner of that crash, I just wasn't used to seeing an F1 car be crashed quite like that. It just, he looked so far from being on top of what the car was going to do. It just, it really felt fundamental at that point. And even as an Ardi fan, I just, I was really uneasy about the manner in which that weekend had gone wrong. It looked more, more than bad luck. It looked like an incompatibility even at that stage. After a disastrous weekend in Brazil, where Zanardi suffered electrical problems in practice, an engine failure in qualifying, then diff and clutch failure in the race, he tried to do what he wished he'd done in pre-season and get Patrick Head to give him an experienced engineer who, as Jim mentioned earlier, would tell him how to set the car up. Zanardi said in his book, I am open-minded and if you convince me that you're right, I'm the first person to change my mind and jump on board. I didn't have to be right as a matter of pride, but perhaps I backed down too easily and I paid the price for it. He wrote that Patrick's response was a non-committal, we'll see what we can do. And in 2020 on Beyond the Grid, he said he could tell already by then that the team's confidence in him had completely vanished. He added, you cannot force a man to believe in you if he believes they have made a mistake in hiring you. I tried, but I was very much lonely from that point onwards. Jim, were you detecting a vibe from inside Williams this early in the season that senior people were losing confidence in Alex already? Not losing confidence, but there was huge concern. Uh, I remember being in Australia and, and watching on, as, as, as Matt said, you know, it was an early spin, and then he just did not make any progress up against backmarkers. You know, I, I was timing lap by lap. I was looking at the sector times and it was so far away from what we needed and what Alex is clearly capable of. Something was fundamentally wrong. Um, by the time we got to the start of a European season, there was definite concern. You know, Patrick was very concerned. But I wouldn't say a lack of confidence. It was more a question of what do we have to do? What can we do? to get Alex onto the pace, onto Ralph's pace. You know, we wouldn't expect him to win Grand Prix given the package we had, but we really expected Alex to be on, on Ralph's pace and, and there was great concern at that time, for sure. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Zanardi spun out of the Imola race late on on oil from Johnny Herbert's blown engine and then finished eighth in Monaco, two laps down having done almost the entire race with a broken seat that he said left him floating in the cockpit. Then in Spain, after qualifying 17th on a weekend where he said the car reacted incomprehensively to every setup modification, he retired when his car lost drive at his first pit stop. And he then faced criticism from XF1 driver and ITV commentator Martin Brundle, who wasn't impressed with Zanardi making a joke at the start of his interview about retiring from the race. So let's hear Zanardi's comment and what Brundle said live on air at the time. Yes, I'm standing here with Alex Zanardi. Alex, you made it into the pits. Why didn't you make it out again? 
Uh, well, recently you never come and see me because I'm too slow, so I decided to stop and see if you would come and interview me. Uh, no, besides joking, I just uh, I was told to select the gear, as I did. I, I heard a strange noise and uh, when I released the clutch, uh, I had no drive, nothing happened, so that was it. Well, uh, Alex there, not having a good run in Formula 1. I think that's the wrong time to make a joke. He's got to be demonstrating he's taking more pain than that. I'm sorry. It's not the right attitude and uh, it's not going at all well from him. And, and I know his bosses will not appreciate a jokey situation like that because it's uh, desperate days at the moment. Brundle expanded on that in his post-race column for Autosport magazine, saying he was shocked by Zanardi's relaxed attitude. He added, We all enjoy Alex's one-liners, but there really ought to have been a lot more pain than that. Matt, what did you think of those comments from Brundle? Was he, was he being a bit harsh? Yeah, I, was, I remember being annoyed at the time, and, I, and 24 and a bit years on, I think I'm, I still think that was that was unfair. I, that it's <laughs> for an ex competitor pundit it's very easy to always judge people by the not so much the standards but by how you went about your competition yourself and how you portrayed yourself and to see anyone doing anything too different from that is not the right way to do it and I, I, as much as i admire martin brundle as a commentator i think some of his punditry over the years has strayed into this this wasn't what i would have done in the mid 80s therefore it must be wrong kind of territory um i i, I definitely had a concern that snardy wasn't seeming to care that much by that point but i i didn't like the way brundle portrayed that and although a lot of the f1 media had been supportive of zanardi coming into f1 because they'd enjoyed what he did in cart so much there was still this kind of layer of if they've come from indycar they can't be as good as f1 and you know and that sort of particularly among the tv commentary team that would come through every now and again i felt there was a degree of just anti-car anti-something different snobbery in how in how brundle handled Sonardi's reaction there well at the same time just thinking yeah it would be nice if it if it definitely felt like you really cared about everything that was going wrong because I'm, I'm not actually sure that you do at this point uh, Jim what, what was it like inside Williams I don't know if you remember this incident specifically but was there ever did anyone ever have an issue with kind of Alex's relaxed attitude I, I think it was a little bit of a concern um but you know, there's lots of mistakes on the team side as well. Let's let's not blame Alex totally at this point. You know, if you've got seats coming away uh, during the middle of a race and clutch failures after pit stops and stuff like that, you know, there are elements of the, the team here which weren't working properly. And I think perhaps what was missing, and we go back to the point Alex made earlier about pitching his tent in, in the Grove car park, maybe that was the time to pitch for tent in the Grove uh, car park and thump the desk about Williams's failures as well, and that didn't happen. Um, and because of that, then you could think, well, does he really mind not having these results? He should do. He should be caring. It, is he already casting his mind back over to the other side of the Atlantic and thinking about returning to to, to Champ Car? So there was that that time as I said at the beginning of a European season, where there just wasn't any progress being made. But as I say, it wasn't all Alex's fault. You know, there were failings from the Williams side. But I, I guess Martin was perhaps picking up, and I know Martin well from when we worked together at Eddie Jordan Racing in Formula 3. Martin 
would be thumping the table about the car failures and he would have pitched his tent in Grove Car Park. And perhaps that's what Martin found frustrating because, as we all know, Alex had phenomenal talent and we all wanted him to do well. And maybe Martin saw that as a lack of application. Yeah, possibly Martin also speaking as someone who probably thought, look, you've got a great opportunity here at Williams, an opportunity that I didn't get. Um, Make the most of it and take it seriously. But it was at the Canadian Grand Prix in June where uh, Zanardi suffered gearbox and brake problems that eventually sent him off the track. This was where rumours started to surface about his future. Frank Williams gave a strong response to that, saying, Alex is perfectly safe. He's got a strong three-year contract. He said he was happy with Zanardi and that his problems were more down to the team than the driver, as Jim just outlined there. So Williams had other things to address before we even think about the drivers. Patrick Head said that Zanardi had been shocked about how nasty an F1 car is to drive relative to a champ car. He said Alex was disappointed that you can't bully an F1 car in the way that you can a champ car. And Patrick felt that this breed of F1 cars were not natural racing cars and they were being strangled because the FIA had gone in the wrong direction by trying to tackle cornering speeds by reducing mechanical grip rather than aerodynamic grip. But Patrick's sympathy was wearing thin by the British Grand Prix when he said Alex's car has had reliability problems, but there have been enough times when it hasn't for us to expect to see closer times between the two drivers. Jim, do you think that this early in the year, so we're kind of June, July time, were Frank and Patrick already considering the idea that this wasn't going to work and they might have to get out of this contract? It would be naive to say that Frank and Patrick weren't thinking about that. It, it really would. But at the same time, they were fully behind him and trying everything to, 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 to try and understand what his problems were. And I remember around that time, Frank had several conversations with Chip Ganassi, uh, and Chip was as perplexed as, as, as we were. And, you know, Chip, you know, offered some advice about how to get the best out of Alex, but I think, you know, stuff that we already knew. But if you go back to what Patrick said, it was it's just such a different type of racing car than he'd been used to, to, to racing. And, you know, Alex's style in, in champ car was very aggressive, really aggressive on the brakes, aggressive on the tyres, uh, leaning on, on the tyres in the corners. And in champ car, you could do that. And, and the two main differences were obviously slick, fully slick tyres as opposed to groove slicks that we had in Formula 1. And I would say also that the other big difference was the, the track of the cars in, in uh, Champ Car. You had a much wider car, which uh, was much easier to, to bully into a corner and get the rewards through the steering and through through the tyres. And I think that, you know, Ralph, by contrast, uh, with a little bit more experience than, than, than Alex had had on these tyres and with this type of car, uh, he was able to come to grips with the car far, far better. And you know, a different teammate may have helped Alex a bit more than, than Ralph did. That's not in Ralph's nature. Um, so that was another thing you could point to, to say, well, Alex really wasn't getting much help from his teammate. Um, and in fact, Ralph thought it was quite funny that, that, that Alex was struggling so much against him. <laughs> uh, and he viewed that as his stock was rising. So 
To answer your question, yes, of course, we started to think, is this the right thing? Don't forget BMW, we're very much in the fray at, at, at this point. Um, you know, we'd signed uh, with BMW. BMW were coming in in 2000. The last thing they wanted was uh, a driver who was not going to deliver for them. So there were certainly some worried discussions. But at the time, Williams were doing everything they could do still to make it work. Zanardi ran out of fuel in Austria when his radio wasn't working properly and he failed to see a pit board calling him in because he was battling with Pedro Diniz outside of the top 10. But the bigger story from that weekend was that Zanardi tried steel brakes on his car to see if they gave him a better feel than the carbon brakes that were the norm in F1. He tried them at a few races after that as well, but only ever in practice. And this was the point I'd made at the start where I think myself included, we all had this impression that kind of for the second half of the year, he was racing them as well. But the problem was, while he felt they gave him more consistent feedback than the carbon brakes, the gains he could make were outweighed, literally, by the fact that the steel discs were 9 to 10 kilograms heavier than the carbon ones. Zanardi didn't talk about them much, but later in the year at Spa, he said, they have some different characteristics which we're trying to evaluate circuit by circuit to see if there could be an advantage. Matt, as a fan who was willing this to work for Zanardi, what did you think when you heard he was trying out what was effectively a backward step technology-wise with the brakes? It just sounded desperate it was one of those situations where i thought oh gosh if any of my friends who remember i was as an rd super fan six months ago spot that and ask me about it i'm not going to be able to give a convincing <laughs> answer for why this is this is this could possibly be a good idea it just it was a bad look to be you know carbon brakes are one of those things that are constantly cited as being one of the keys to f1 technology and to say no i can do better with something that sounded like it's from 1960s was just it so it just sounded so obviously wrong from the outside even if you could follow his logic you, you kind of looked at it and thought that's a, that's a worthwhile thought experiment to have to maybe play with for 10 minutes on a test day, but don't say it out loud. Don't bring it to an actual Grand Prix. Um, but you know, as you said a moment ago, the way you described his race, ran out of fuel because he didn't see a pit board. That's one thing. You know, We all laughed at John Lacey in Melbourne in 97 for doing that and thought that was True. just the most incompetent thing you could do while battling with Pedro Diniz, of all people. So a driver who quite recently had been a laughingstock. Everything was... When everything's that bad... Okay, try rolling a dice. You could see how he was in that position. It was it was such a massive fall from grace. You know that, that a year before that he was he basically sealed the ninety eight cart title by that time. I think this would have been in, he had a really awful mid Ohio race in August ninety eight where he just ran into everybody and it didn't matter because he was a million points ahead already. And he went back. I think he won again at Alcott Lake a week later. Or, or... I knew we'd get some niche cart detail at some point from you in this episode. Yeah, I could describe his mid Ohio collisions pretty well. I think. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the the fact that what was an appalling race a year earlier would look quite good by 99 standards kind of showed just how far he'd fallen. And it, it, it made sense for him to be going into complete craziness territory with the experiments he was trying, given how bad things were. You could understand the logic, but you couldn't defend it. Jim, with, with the brakes, was this just a case of Williams trying to do anything to, to give Zanardi something back from the car, just, just to give him any sort of direction maybe or some sort of comfort? with this car that he clearly wasn't getting on with. Yeah, I think so, Glenn. I wasn't across that enough to be able to, to comment on that in, in any detail. But I, I think that's exactly right. We were trying absolutely everything to get this boy to, to, to function at the level that we all know he's capable of, of being at. Um, and 
if he felt that Steel Breaks was going to unlock the, the performance, then great, we'll, we'll give it to him. But yeah, it does, as Matt's saying, sounds pretty desperate, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it does, yeah. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Patrick Head spoke about how Zanardi didn't like how the F1 cars felt to drive. And Zanardi expanded on that during the summer in an interview with David Tremaine in Autosport. He said that when he returned to F1, he realised immediately that the car was anything but what I would want in, time, in terms of driving style. He said he was trying to carry too much speed into the corners, but these cars, and particularly the groove tyres, offered no grip laterally. So he said the key was to brake hard, get the car turned as quickly as possible, and then get back on the power. He added, when I start to turn in, I'm asking the tyre to support me laterally. I know that if I keep pressing the brake pedal, the tyre will not give me something in one direction while I'm asking it to turn in another. Around mid-season, he switched to left foot braking, which he'd avoided doing because his kart teammate Jimmy Vassar had done it and was never as smooth as him over there. But Zanardi had realised, you can't drive this car smoothly, you just have to throw it in. In his book, he admitted that he should have been working on adapting his driving style from the very beginning to work with what Williams's simulation said was the best way to drive the car rather than trying to come up with his own setups that would suit him better. I think Jim made that point earlier on in the show. But Jim, was there sympathy from within Williams for the way Alex was struggling with this? Or do you get to a point where there's a frustration or an impatience that he's not getting his head around it? How much of the onus eventually is on the driver to... to to do what the car needs? Well, there was sympathy because uh, we all knew what we, we'd bought uh, and unfortunately playing out in front of our eyes was not what we, what we had bought. But it comes a time, particularly in the Williams culture, whereby you're signing a professional racing driver, spending a lot of money on him, and you expect him to perform. And, you know, Williams has been criticised for having a culture where we don't put an arm around the driver and, and, and perhaps encourage them to to get to a point of performance. It's expected. And, you know, Williams at that time, World Championship winning team, multi-Grand Prix winning team, we've hired you. We're paying you a lot of money. You should be sorting out your own problems. So it was this combination of wanting him to, to, to get there, doing everything, we could do to get him to a place where he was comfortable and could deliver the results and the speed that we uh, expected of him. But at the same time, it wasn't in the culture of Williams to really put an arm around him and, and, and mollycoddle him. So I guess there was a bit of a dichotomy there. But yeah, that, that kind of interaction was, was going on through those summer months for sure. It's it's only really in the last couple of years I've I've had this thought about Zanardi's season. But it's interesting you talk about the molly coddling and the support, Jim, because when Daniel Ricciardo was struggling at McLaren, I kept thinking of Zanardi's Williams situation as being a similar example of drivers who are maybe quite extreme in their peaks and troughs and quite extreme in their emotions and how they approach racing. And in both cases, these are drivers who, when they're confident in the team around them and what the car's doing... How, how much they can kind of exceed their average level is, is really spectacular. They, they both felt like drivers who, with, a, with the right degree of self-belief in the right situation, could suddenly transcend maybe what they were really capable of and become elite in that moment. But then on the flip side, 
if they're not confident in their environment, if they're not confident in their car, the, the amount of spiral and descent was as, as dramatic as the, as the heights they could reach. And it it was only really seeing what was happening to Ricardo in recent years that maybe have that thought even more about Zanardi. That it wasn't just a case of maybe not getting an arm around the shoulder, a bit more support and a bit more time, but just whenever you saw the kind of post-race um, hugs and stuff in the IndyCar years, how much the Ganassi crew seemed to love him, the relationship he had with the team, everything was on such a high and he could really tap into that and he could be a lap down in, in 21st place after something had gone wrong and still believe he could win because anything could be possible and he could find that within himself as a result. But then, and this was the opposite situation, it was just nothing can be possible, so I am only going to go backwards, so almost to the degree of of what is the point. And it kind of goes... It goes beyond just a does he need a sympathetic environment or not. It goes into a territory of this is someone who can only really achieve their best when when all the stars align. But when all the stars do align, their best is so incredible that it's 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 a shame it's it's only appears in those limited in those limited pockets. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. And and I think, you know, the amount of miles that you do in a Formula One car, if by sort of late summer things are not improving and improving dramatically, then you do start to wonder if this is going to work out or not. Um, because done a lot of miles by then, testing, free practice, qualifying and, and races, uh, and, and there was no sign of a breakthrough. I have to say, listening to you both there talk about um, arm around the shoulder and Williams' culture and that sort of thing, uh, Alex isn't the only driver uh, who could have done with a bit of that. And I, I was certainly thinking my Damon Hill vibes were intensifying at one point there, I have to say. Um, I, 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 I'm pretty sure Damon doesn't listen. Um, well, one day, one day maybe he will, and I'm sure he would, uh, he would have sympathy as well. But there were finally some promising signs at Spa, where Zanardi qualified eighth and was on course for a points finish until it emerged that a refuelling problem had prevented his car from taking on enough fuel at his only scheduled stop. So he made another stop and finished eighth. What was interesting about this race was that Zanardi's car failed on the grid. So he took the start in the spare car, which was set up for Ralph. And, uh, and he ran Ralph pretty close for most of that race until his extra stop. Zanardi said in his book that this was the final confirmation that the way the team wanted the car set up was the way to go and it was up to him to learn to drive it. But Matt, we can we can assess that with what's frighteningly a quarter of a century of hindsight now. At the time, though, from afar, did it look like there might be something to salvage from this horrible season? Was there a blip of hope for you from Spa or was the damage done by now? No, this was so. We'll talk about Monza in a second, and that's the one everyone refers to as like the the hint of a breakthrough. Spa for me was the one that really stuck in my mind. Uh, coincidentally, I was watching this race at the house of the same friends where I'd watched Melbourne and being kind of roundly mocked for the state of my hero. And we were all kind of spotting what's that graphic you had in nineties F one TV where you got like the top eight and the gaps on screen along the bottom, and his gap to Ralph and everyone else was really respectable. It was. It was so different, everything up till then. It was at Spa, so it was like a proper circuit as well. It didn't see. It just seemed like some kind of breakthrough had been made that looked genuinely real. Now, of course, when he made that extra stop and it emerged that that was part of the reason I did get slightly mocked, there were assumptions that he was running lighter than Ralph and that was the only reason he was quick. Uh, but it did seem like there was more to it than that, especially as it, like I say, it was a, a circuit that asks a bit of a driver, needs some comfort with the car. 
and it just seemed it seemed to be actually working at that point in a way that it hadn't it hadn't looked at all like that at any stage of the season up up till then. It, no matter what the weather, no matter what the circuit, and you know, ninety nine had some strange races. Zanardi being slow was just a constant, and at Spa he looked absolutely respectable. Obviously, if uh, if this had been the year of social media, there'd have been some claims that Ralph had a special car and that Zanardi <laughs> was only quick because Ralph was uh, because he was in Ralph's car, but. If Spa was good, then as Matt mentioned, Monza was something else. Despite Williams' Supertech engines being somewhere between 40 and 60 horsepower down on the best engines on the grid, and Jim can correct me if that's wrong in a moment, uh, Zanardi qualified fourth ahead of Ralph as both Williamses were in the top five. Alex got up to second at the start behind Mika Hakkinen, and after being repassed by eventual winner Heinz Held Frentzen on the opening lap, he ran third for the opening spell of the race. However, he couldn't keep pace with the front two and a queue of cars was forming behind him, led by Ralph in the other Williams. Zanardi eventually waved Ralph by and when Ralph went on to finish second, he thanked Alex for the gesture. Although Zanardi revealed in his book that when he was first ordered to move over, he pretended he was having radio problems. Then he moved aside when he realised that he really was holding Ralph up. Again, we love Zanardi's honesty. The reason Zanardi didn't have the pace was because his floor had come loose, so it was dragging on the ground. It was thought at the time that it had come loose from a whack on a curb, but Zanardi says it was accidentally left loose when the car was put together. So, Matt, you've explained how you felt about Spa. What were your feelings about this race? Pleased to see him finally do well or sad that he missed out on points? So, um, amusingly, I never watched this race. I, uh, Big confession. Yeah. I was at Castle Coombe doing a national report that weekend and I set the video to record it. It didn't record. I messed that up. And then when I got home and I read, I you know, went on whatever dial-up internet I had and read what had happened. I don't. None of the things I read referred to Tesnardi having any problems. It just referred to him being near the front and then being slow, holding everyone up and being passed. So I just went, ah. I don't need to watch that. It's just going to be more more misery. Later in the week when the magazines came out and you, know, you read the kind of full story, yeah, there was a bit more hope, especially following Spa. It really felt like something, two similar setup demand circuits in a way, but two in a row where he'd actually been really showing hints of, of what might be possible. Um, it didn't last very long, though, did it? I think the Nürburgring next time out was one of my more embarrassing Zanardi fan races with how badly he qualified. And in a race where you'd think he might be able to make something magic happen, he was great in the little bits of wet running he did in Champ Car. I think he did a really embarrassing collision with someone rubbish quite early in that race. So, the, yes, there were three weeks of great optimism around Spa and Monza, but they were so bluntly dashed. Yeah, I, I was I was back fully believing by this point. I, I was a Zanardi fan, and I, I was a I was a car an Indy car fan as well. So I wanted anyone who come over um, to do to do a good job. And I thought this is it. He's cracked it now, and um, he certainly hadn't. Let's talk a little bit more though about Zanardi and Ralph. We heard we heard from Jim earlier that Ralph perhaps didn't help Alex as much as he could have. Through the years, Zanardi said all the right things about their relationship. He admitted that they weren't close friends, but that they worked well together for the benefit of the team. But in his book, um, Zanardi said Ralph was horrendous towards him and he called Ralph manipulative and weak. He said it was unbearable 
and that Ralph never missed the opportunity to throw salt in a wound or make sarcastic and cutting comments. He said Ralph even took shots at Juan Pablo Montoya, who had gone from being Williams' test driver to taking Zanardi's seat in America with Ganassi and had picked up where Zanardi left off by going on to win that title in his first year. Zanardi wrote, uh, Ralph loved to say that Montoya was a nobody in a championship that anybody could win. And he added, maybe this isn't any of my business, but I was delighted when Montoya joined the team and beat Ralph on many occasions. Jim, you said Ralph didn't help uh, Alex very much. Was Was this level of tension that Alex has mapped out there, was that obvious inside the team or was this going on in private? I, I share a lot of what Alex said there, um, and I think that you know I'm sure in a debrief session Ralph would have been smart enough to look as though he was focused on on trying to move the team forward and and you know had some sympathy for Alex's struggles. But the moment that debrief was over, Ralph, as I say, wouldn't have missed an opportunity to. Uh, delight in the fact that he was beating Alex um, and, and, and to belittle him and, and then Montoya. But as you say, uh, the last laugh was maybe on Juan Pablo when he came to, to race against Ralph. But let's go back to, to, to Alex uh, and, and, and his struggles there. I, I said earlier that I don't think that Ralph was a great teammate to help Alex and that was one of the, the, the issues. Uh, and, and I would, would certainly stand by that. Um, and I think, you know, the, the glimmer of hope around Spa and Monza was c- quite interesting because that's traditionally the time of year when you would be talking to other drivers and looking to do deals. And I think what happened around Spa and, and Monza made Frank and to a lesser extent, Patrick, take their eye off the ball in terms of a driver market. And it's well documented that in 2000, um, on the day of the compact launch, which was January the 21st, 2000, 2000, we did not have a teammate for Ralph Schumacher. That's another story altogether. But Matt, is right when he said that we we looked at what happened in Spa, we looked at what happened in, in Monza, and we thought, oh, no, he's getting to grips with it here. But there's two things I would I'd like to make. I, the floor was not loose. You know, the floor came away because he crashed over the curbs. Um, you know, if it had been loose, it would have come apart on the warm-up lap. Okay. Um, he crashed over the curbs and, and, you know, was good at doing that to get the speed. But... Probably a Reynard production racing car is a lot tougher than a, a, a more fragile Formula One car. And that was a, a lesson for him. I think the other point is that both Spa and Monza are obviously light on downforce. And this helped with that uh, Williams of, of 1999. It, it, it was a car which worked better in light downforce conditions because of what we said earlier about the deficiencies of a super tech engine. I think you mentioned 40 or 50 brake horsepower down. Oh, yeah, I would say at least it was, uh, don't forget well, that engine for Williams was last developed at the end of 1997. So it'd gone through the whole of 98 with no development. And by the time you're at the 
you know, latter stages of 1999, it's way, way, way behind the opposition. So, yeah, the car was a bit better at those two races, but everyone in Williams wanted this to work for Alex and there was definitely a glimmer of hope. And I think Frank took his foot off the accelerator looking at different options because of that. I'm really fascinated by that, Jim. I hadn't had that thought at all before about... So do you feel they might... This is probably more for a future Jensen Button 2000 episode, but do you feel there were other options? Which we will do. Yeah, definitely. Were there other options at that point that Frank and Patrick might have pursued more if if Alex hadn't put in those two good races, do you think? I think there would have been, yeah. Um, I'm sure that there would have been. I can't recall what they were, but I do remember that that hope which we saw from those two races made... Frank believed that this is going to work. And and because we had this three-year commitment, nobody wanted it not to work. Um, And it would be a huge financial penalty for Williams if it didn't work. So, yeah, I'm 100% sure that those two races um, maybe affected what we should have been doing in the driver market. And I'll say this. Frank was always quite emotional with racing drivers. And, you know, for a man that was devoid of emotions and famously said emotions are a sign of weakness, drivers did sway him. There was no doubt about it. And Alex had this fantastic aura about him, this friendliness, this warmth, humor, passion. Everyone just wanted him to work and to be the successful Williams Formula One driver that we thought he could and should be. And I think for once, Frank made a mistake there. And and those two races were perhaps the glimmer of hope, which wasn't at the end of a tunnel where we thought it was. While Ralph scored points in two of the three remaining races of the year and could have won at the Nürburgring, as Matt said, Zanardi's year went back to being miserable. And when his car shut down halfway round the opening lap of the final race at Suzuka, Zanardi was left to face mounting speculation that he was going to lose his drive for the following year. He said on the Beyond the Grid podcast that walking around the Suzuka paddock that weekend felt very much uncomfortable as he knew he wasn't wanted anymore. Patrick Head fueled that fire by saying that nothing was decided for 2000, adding, he has a contract for next year, but we've got to decide whether 99 is an example of the potential or an aberration. We can't go into 2000 as a one-car team. Zanardi said he wanted to continue, especially with BMW coming in for 2000, but he took a shot of his own back at Williams, saying, I believed I'd find an impeccable team, but it was not the case. If you finish the season with no points, people remember that, but not the many times you retired. Matt, we've got to the end of the season. Zero points there, as as Alex said. Did you think the partnership was doomed by this point? Yeah, I I didn't see any. The trouble was you could talk about BMW coming in. You could look at whether there was hope with a different car design. I I can't remember if Michelin was on the horizon at that point as well. You could look at some factors that were about to change. But none of them seemed like they were going to be remotely enough. enough. Things were so bad. The noises coming out of the team as well had been so bad by that time. There was 
it just seemed like even if there was a contract, even if there was a bit of hope that something would change that would make enough difference with a new engine supplier and different car, what was the point? The gap was too big. The relationship was too broken. There had to be, there had to be a way out. Now, I guess anything that made it look less doomed was, like Jim's alluded to, the, the lack of obvious alternatives at that point. I can't remember who was even being rumoured as a replacement. I assume Bruno Genchera, given what he was doing and Williams's relationship with him, you you would look at. There was a lot of flights of fancy being taken <laughs> in the media. It was as if they they could detect, or they were just adding two and two together that Zanardi was probably vulnerable. But there was never a sort of credible leading candidate. You know, there were there were talks of swap deals with BAR for Villeneuve and all these random things that seemed fanciful. And I think that reflected either they couldn't find out who the who the contenders were, or there wasn't an obvious leading contender this late in the in the day. And I don't think anyone was writing Jensen Button at that point either. No. Were they at all? Um, it, it probably seemed. I think. There were, I, I'm sure there were reports of trying to get Juan Pablo Montoya back a year early. Um, Chip Ganassi uh, was not entertaining that. Absolutely not. You, you, you wondered if as Montoya won the title the first attempt, whether he might, but Chip had done the, the Toyota deal and everything for the Jim's following nodding. year. <laughs> yeah, so that was never. That was always a non-starter. I have to say, without wanting to agree with Ralph Schumacher, there were times in 99 where I thought Montoya's making Champ Car look a little bit too easy at the moment. This, <laughs> this is not ideal for Zanardi's reputation either. But yeah, as apart from the fact there was no obvious candidate, it, even as a Zanardi fan, I just wanted the whole thing to be over, him to find a home back in America. I can't remember if the idea of Mo Nunn starting his own team was live by this point or not, but I just wanted him to get out of Williams, get out of F1 and go back to having fun. So the season finished on the 31st of October. Imagine that today. But Williams didn't officially part with Zanardi until the middle of January. And in the weeks between, things got pretty uncomfortable has to be said autosport reported at the start of december that zanardi had been dropped but williams would not confirm it and the team raised eyebrows by continuing to send zanardi out to make media appearances on behalf of sponsors zanardi wrote about this extensively in his book saying it was part of a plan by williams to force his hand so they wouldn't have to pay him off in full to walk away he said, they sent me to meet sponsors and the journalists, uh, fueled by rumours, asked what I was planning for the following year. They were trying to frustrate me so that I would reveal the truth. I knew exactly what they were up to, but I had a contract and was intending to fulfil it. During the winter, the team didn't do anything to help. They started testing other drivers while Ralph was constantly in the car. Meanwhile, I had the impression that they were sending journalists to me to trap me into saying something damaging. They clearly wanted me to quit. Now, we're quite fortunate here that we've got Jim, who was running the show commercially at Williams. So perhaps you can fill us in. What's the story behind Alex being sent to these appearances after the world's media are saying he's been dumped by the team? Well, I think it sounds like paranoia was creeping in then. Uh, don't forget, we have obligations through sponsors which go on for 12 months of the year. Of course. And these are not based around a racing calendar. They're based around events or timings for the sponsor dictates um, and in different markets, etc. So we would have had those booked for months and months and months. Uh, so we weren't suddenly thinking, oh, right, it's the end of the season. Let's send Alex out to, on, on June's to our sponsors. No, that's not the case at all. Um, I think that reflected the fact that he had a contract. Uh, we were still under the impression uh, that Alex would be lining up. Uh, in fact, I think if I recall, uh, 
BMW suits were 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 made up uh, for him. Um, yeah, it, it was all still happening. But I think there was growing pressure now from BMW, and th- th- this is a point which he hasn't raised or doesn't seem to have raised, and, and, and you guys haven't made much of this yet. But BMW was going to be our, our, our partner from 2000. We'd already been working with them on the Le Mans uh, project and obviously helping them develop a Formula 1 engine. Now, Alex wasn't doing a lot of testing over the winter. No one was, because at that time, the engine couldn't run more than three laps before disintegrating. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating there. And so BMW, I think, uh, was saying, look, Frank, I, we, we're not comfortable about this. Gerhard Berger was very much involved then as, as uh, BMW Motorsports uh, leading representative. And he was saying to Frank, Frank, it's not working. You know, if you give him another year, all you're going to do is waste that year. Better to take a chance on somebody. And that was the rhetoric going on through November, December. Um, and then the Jensen Button story is, is, is one in its own but and, and could be done on a different podcast. But it came about very, very late. Um and was only uh, confirmed, I think Jensen said this himself, he got his first call from Frank on Christmas Eve. Uh, And I had very much a a hand in that. So I think that a real story here was that he was working, uh, as he would do any Williams driver, doing lots of appearances for sponsors, and and that was always linked to media as well. There was the intention that he would go on as a Williams driver in 2000, but the growing pressure from BMW and the encouragement from Gerhard for Frank to take a risk made the decision uh, possible for Frank and Patrick. And it was a late call. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's always good to hear it from, uh, from, the, from the inside. And as you say, ultimately, if the engagements are set and the team hasn't confirmed that he's out, then you can't really call off an engagement because of an Autosport magazine report. Sure. But uh, things, as you mentioned, did come to a head finally in January uh, when Zanardi was invited over to the UK for talks with Frank and Patrick. Zanardi said Frank did all the talking, saying that while 99 was bad, uh, Frank said, if you really want it and you're ready to get down to business and are convinced that we should continue, then we are happy to. At this point, Zanardi says uh, he let fly. He told Frank the whole season has been a joke. He said that the team had lost faith in him after four races and that Williams had spent the winter criticising him, hoping he would throw in the towel. He accused the team of trying to get him to him to break the contract because it was expensive to pay him off. Then he said, I'm ready to stay this year, but if I do, I'm also staying the next. If you really want to motivate me, don't treat me like an idiot by saying that you're giving me another chance. This is bullshit. You're keeping me because you can't afford to go down another route. So just tell me the truth. You don't trust me as a driver anymore. And this is the most logical thing to do. You decide because it's not up to me at all. It's ridiculous that you're putting this on my shoulders, hoping that I'm so frustrated that I'll quit. The easier option would be to quit, but I don't see why I should do it. Zanardi said the next day, Frank called him, told him he was right and said it was better for them to go their separate ways. And in Frank's words, let the lawyers get on with it. Matt, what do you make of the the kind of down in a blaze of glory way that Zanardi stood up for himself there? I think it's entirely appropriate. 
um, and I quite admire it. At the same time, um, I've looked at that a bit differently over the years. That that's an Zanardi book in which he wrote about that. He also revealed a lot about his negotiations over cart contracts with Chip Ganassi that threw a whole new light on that relationship and made that seem far more tempestuous than it was coming across uh, on TV at the time. So part of me was reading that in his book back then going, gosh, you know, you fell out that badly with Chip when you're winning stuff. So there's a degree of how, <laughs> how Zanardi goes about negotiations there. Looking at those comments now, there's a part of me that, that's going, yeah, okay, fair enough. If Williams was trying to kind of edge you into making the call yourself rather than paying the penalty, then okay, call their bluff. That makes sense. But that that portrayal of what's going on doesn't. There's no responsibility being taken from Zanardi's side there. You know that ultimately, this was the generation of F1 cars that he had signed up to drive. It was also on him to find a way to drive them. And there was a decent amount of evidence over the season that he was either going down wrong turnings or his attitude and approach wasn't quite right. This this was a mutual thing. Williams hadn't delivered a reliable, well-engineered car for Zanardi. Zanardi hadn't delivered the best version of Zanardi for Williams. Uh, Frank's kind of closing words there of better to go their separate ways and let the lawyers get on with it is perfect. That's what this that's what this should have been. If Williams was trying to kind of edge him into jumping before he was pushed, that's not ideal. But you. Zanardi did also need to do do his bit and go, actually, did, yeah, I, I can see this hasn't worked. I'm either going to commit to doing these things about it and change these things on my side, or I need to get out of here as well. Now, in, in his book, Zanardi said he was really surprised by the attitude within Williams because he went there thinking he had chosen a team with little politics who cared less about appearances and more about substance. And he said the way it ended affected his passion for racing at that time. But as I said, that was 2004 the book came out. Over time, he's not held on to any ill feeling towards Williams. In 2020, he said he didn't blame Williams and that Patrick Head even engineered his car at a test to see if he could help Zanardi regain control of the situation. And of Frank Williams, he said the thing he feels worst about from that season is that he would have loved to grant Frank personally a success. I would have loved to make that man happy. That is the greatest disappointment. And he takes responsibility now for it going wrong. He said, I am the main reason for my defeat. And he said that he didn't fight hard enough to be heard inside the team when things started to go wrong because he was empty inside after three years in America and having just become a father, which meant he wanted to spend more time at home. He said it was a more comfortable solution for me to say, okay, maybe they're right. Let them try it that way. Instead of saying to my wife, sorry, I'm going to England. I don't know when I'm coming back, but I've got to get this straight. In 2016, he told Motorsport magazine that Frank's responsibility was to the organisation he was running and I failed to deliver what they were expecting. And he said he was particularly touched that Frank said his big disappointment was that he had not been able to get the same performance out of Zanardi that Chip Ganassi had in America. Jim, as a kind of final word on this, once the dust had settled and everybody went their separate ways, what were the feelings within Williams about Alex and, and why it didn't work out? Well, I recall that meeting um, with with Alex and, and uh, Frank. I wasn't uh, in, in the room, but Frank came to me afterwards and said, we're, we're going to be going our, our separate ways. Um, but the one thing Frank was surprised at was where was that fire and passion earlier in the year? If that had been April thumping the table, 
you've got to sort this out, Frank. You know, this isn't the team that I thought I'd joined. That might have changed things. But to do that in January as a grenade lobbed into a room as you exit was perhaps one big disappointment. But he's 100% right in that Frank felt that we'd let Alex down uh, by not getting the results that he was capable of. And Alex was 100% right, the mellow Alex, uh, later on when he said he was disappointed that he didn't get the results for Frank. They loved each other, those two. Uh, absolutely adored each other. Had fantastic time together, shared a, a real passion for, for, for life and, and jokes, humour. Um, you know, Frank would start, wouldn't even start even the darkest or deepest meeting with Alex without asking him to give him a joke. So those those two really, there was a warmth and a passion between them, and a sadness when it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, that that once that meeting had taken place, Frank's first observation was, "Where was that passion earlier when we needed it?" Sad. That's a really really interesting way of looking at it. That I'll admit hadn't occurred to me while I was I was doing the research. Yeah, it was it was a bit late to light a fire under yourself and under the team. By then, Matt, any any final thoughts? I I guess for you as a fan, what was it disappointment that Zanardi was leaving F1 again? Or as you mentioned earlier, were you actually glad that he wasn't going to be put through another year of that? Yeah, it, it was total relief at that point. And kind of optimism for what he'd do when he got back to America, because it seemed obvious that that would eventually happen little bit of trepidation for whether Montoya would struggle when he came across as well because I was almost kind of pinning my hopes on Montoya as a fan by that time as well and, you know Snardi's comeback when he went back to kart with Monon Racing didn't work out and it just again it showed that sort of how peaky his his ability to access his best could be you know in, in a less established team post-tire war he really struggled in 2001 um, when he went back and um, you know, as as most people will remember, he, his best race that year was the one where he actually ended up having that horrendous accident and losing his legs at the same time he'd really looked competitive all year. So, I yeah, I was relieved it was over. I understood, I, yeah, I've mentioned quite a few times on Bring Back V10s and in stuff I've written how much I hated groove tyres, narrow track, hard hard control bridge stands. I felt it was ruining an F1 I'd grown up loving and make, make just these horrible twitchy cars. Um, the fact I'm, I was happy, to, I was not fussed if I'd failed to record a race successfully without covering some club racing. That was that was not me as an F1 fan a year earlier. I was losing a bit of faith in F1 at that point, and my hero's failure kind of I packaged up in that as well. A li- as this episode went on, I actually probably felt more strongly than I have for a while that I, I do wish it had gone on into 2000 to see what might have happened with a slightly better car with the BMW engine. Um, Alex getting a chance to work on a new engineering project with BMW, that that really could have been that could have been better, but that was still this generation of F1 cars, and I I kind of I still feel strongly that when you've got someone like Zanardi with his personality and how important his emotions are to his performance, once faith has been lost, it's it's not coming back. Yeah, you know, on on either side. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. I I would just add to that that when we all reflect on on Alex's career. Actually, the only time it worked was those few years together with Chip when everything clicked and he was unstoppable. But if you look at the chances he had when he drove for Jordan uh, at the end of of, of 91, uh, when he drove 
the Williams up against Ralph Schumacher when he went back to to cart. He wasn't there. Now, now why? I, and my own theory is, I think we all got seduced by this charming man who was very, very bright, articulate, uh, and and full of positivity. That we all wanted it to work, but reality was: look back through all of his results. The times it did work were few and far between, and and that that is Alex. When we look at it, he could get it together at times when everything clicked. But if something was wrong, he wasn't able to change things around and and, and bring himself to a point where he could make it all work. Not all his fault by any stretch of imagination, but thinking about Alex, it only worked on certain occasions. Uh, and, and that's perhaps some of the myth and the mystery of, of, of the great man. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and for anyone who hasn't or doesn't know anything about his three years in carts, 96, 97, 98, go and look them up. Go and find the highlights, clips, or if you're really keen, find the full races. It's all there. It, As Jim says, when it worked, it was magic. That that was what Zanardi was capable of. And, um, you know, the, your time will be well spent if you go and seek some of that stuff out. Yeah, Laguna Seca 96, the blatantly illegal but fun pass is the one everyone talks about. But Cleveland 97, coming back from last after a penalty, and most of all, Long Beach 98, where he's just nowhere, he's a lap down, his suspension's bent after an early pile-up that he got caught up in, and you just see this red car appearing closer and closer in the background of shots when they're tracking the leaders, and suddenly this this thing you thought could never happen and weren't even thinking was vaguely a possibility does happen, and it's, incre- it's incredible. That's the level he could reach. When things clicked, they, they didn't just click, they took off like this insane rocket ship, and that was what made him worth believing in. And, and how seductive was that to Frank Williams and, and Patrick Head? You know, oh, he, he was doing things that you didn't think were possible. And there were some yardsticks there. There were some other good ex-Formula 1 drivers in there that we knew what they were capable of doing in a Formula 1 car. So when you saw that, you thought, wow, this has got to work. He's going to be magic in a Formula 1 car. Sad. Yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's quite good, actually, to, to end this episode kind of on the, the high point of how good he was in America. That's that's the thing we want everyone to remember his his career for. So as I say, if you've not seen those moments or you know, if you need to hit the skip back button to get note down those races Matt just gave you, go and find those. They are they're all on YouTube in full. Um it's it's well worth doing. Um uh, particularly if you're listening to this in January as we release it, uh, before the racing season starts. Good way to get yourself some motorsport. And Obviously, at the moment, updates on Alex's condition since his accident in 2020 have been sparse for a while. Uh, We all uh, wish him and his family incredibly well. We hope that there can be some positive news there at some point. And we know that everyone listening, their thoughts are always with Alex. Uh, It's obviously a shame uh, that there there aren't more positive F1 stories that we could do uh, to look back on his career. But yeah, I feel like... A good place to leave this is to say, go back now and, and go and find go and find the version of Alex, as Jim said there, that is the reason Frank Williams signed him, because the guy we got in 99 wasn't the guy that Frank thought he was signing. Um, we'll leave it there for Zanardi. As I've said, at some point, we will continue this story from where we've 
left off. And we'll do Jensen Buttons 2000 one day. That'll be for a, another series. Now, I mentioned quite a few times Alex's book. That's brilliant. Um, and his chapter on F1 is extensive and, and really good. So for our members club, uh, Matt and I are going to do a bonus episode. We're going to run through that entire chapter from Alex's book and, and stop off along the way and make, make some observations and, and get into the, the bits that we haven't included here. But next time on Bring Back V10s, we're heading back to 1994 and that year's Belgian Grand Prix where Spa's most famous corner was neutered with an unpopular temporary chicane. And Michael Schumacher made an F1 car's plank famous when he was disqualified from the race after claiming victory on the track. The Athletic.